Good afternoon. I'm Shelby Herbert. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Thursday, February 9th. There's no question about it. Travel is back. As the pandemic fades, Americans are going on business trips, flying to conferences, and going on vacation. In southeast Alaska, families routinely fly out of town for sports or doctor visits, or just to visit somewhere less cold and rainy. But as KFSK's Rachel Cassandra reports, a surge in travel has Petersburg's teachers and administrators worried that students are falling behind. School administrators in Petersburg have been alarmed this year by how many families are taking extended vacations outside of school breaks. Middle and high school principal Ambler Moss put it this way during a recent school board work session. We already had a uh, culture of absenteeism, all the travel from trips, but post-COVID, it unleashed that ferocity of travel, you know, the addiction to, I got to get off the island, I got to go somewhere, anywhere. And I'm concerned that it's been now normalized and we're not going to get the genie back in the bottle. Administrators say it's hard on kids and on teachers who have to help kids make up what they're missing in the classroom. The school doesn't have hard limits on how many days kids can miss, but they have asked a handful of families to leave the school this year because their kids were missing too much school for travel. And aside from the practical problems with getting kids caught up, administrators are concerned that absences could keep kids from meeting new state standards. The Alaska Reads Act this fall will require extra testing and instruction for kids who are falling behind in reading. Moss says he's worried that all these absences are impacting the quality of teaching in Petersburg classrooms for all kids, not just the ones missing school. My concern is that that much absence is also getting it baked into the cake where teachers are consciously or otherwise lowering standard to some extent in order to make it doable for everybody. Administrators say they understand the value of trips, family time, and traveling during off-season, but they want to reduce absences. Research shows that missing school for any reason hurts kids academically. Kids who miss at least 10% of their school days... That's about three weeks for Petersburg students, are at risk for a number of problems later in life. Those kids are more likely to fall behind or drop out. As adults, they're more likely to be poor, to have poor health, and to be arrested or in prison. In Petersburg, there are 172 days of school. So that means if kids miss more than 17 days of school total, they're at risk. Missing school also affects kids socially at a time when youth mental illness is spiking. Research shows that kids who miss a lot of school are more likely to feel alienated and to stop trying to connect with other kids. Superintendent Erica Klutpainer says teachers have seen this when kids leave for long vacations. We do have teachers talk about that. Kids are gone for two or three weeks. They come back, they're just like, I don't have a clue what's going on right. in my room. People are all moving on to this. They are, you know, they've lost a friend maybe over that amount of time. Groups have changed. They have a hard time reintegrating. Clute Painter says part of Petersburg's problem is because of how school policy defines excused and unexcused absences. Right now, when kids miss school for medical reasons, travel for sports, or for most pre-approved vacations, those absences are considered excused. According to state law, kids can be suspended or expelled if they have too many unexcused absences. But Alaska requires districts to set their own definitions for what kinds of absences are considered excused or unexcused. We're a district that shows 
no chronically absent students because of the way certain things are coded, and yet we have people on three-week trips in addition to X, Y, and Z. So it's this conversation about what does it mean to be excused and what does it mean to be unexcused? Does it mean that they make things up, they don't make things up? Clute Painter says the district may change what kinds of absences are considered unexcused. They may start excusing only a certain number of days of vacation time during the school year. Any changes like this would be made through modifications in the school handbook. The superintendent and administration can make those changes. The school board has discussed changing the school calendar to adjust to the time families tend to take off, usually after the winter holidays when flights are cheaper. That might help families keep their kids in school for more days. But Clute Painter says they'll likely hold off on changes for next school year's calendar. And school board president Sarah Holmgren says the school needs to follow the community's lead on any big changes. We could try and design a calendar ad nauseum, but if you don't have buy-in from your community, then I feel like we're spinning our wheels, especially if you have families that are like, nope, I'm taking six weeks off, and so their priorities are different than ours. Yeah. Clute Painter says this issue is not one unique to Petersburg. In a recent meeting with superintendents throughout southeast Alaska, she said classroom attendance was a hot issue. About half the group put absenteeism and attendance as an issue and a concern to address. So we're not alone in this. Clute Painter says the board will likely continue to discuss attendance at every meeting for the foreseeable future. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Petersburg's next school board meeting is February 14th, and the board will choose a calendar for the upcoming year. This week's Petersburg Borough Assembly meeting ran two hours long and featured several presentations from the Housing Task Force. The task force was created in October of 2022 to address the shortage of, avoid- of affordable housing in town. The meeting opened with Brian Wilson, executive director of the Alaska Coalition of Housing and Homelessness. He reported on how other Alaskan communities are addressing issues related to homelessness. He said homelessness is everywhere in Alaska and that there's a large number of folks who think it's just an Anchorage thing or a big city thing. But that's not true. Every community has extremely low-income individuals, uh, and one thing leads to another, and people end up in houseless situations. It may look different from community to community. The numbers might be smaller, but the relative impact to smaller communities and the smaller numbers is, is a big thing. Housing Task Force member Gary Alba said suggesting suggested starting a land trust in Petersburg modeled off of Sitka's community land trust. While land trust residents would own their home, they would not own the land it's on. When they resell the home, they can only make a 25% profit when they sell the house, which would guarantee that the houses remain affordable for future buyers. Chair of the task force, Dave Kensinger, said Petersburg could prepare lots for sale that can easily be hooked up to utilities, The task force identified approximately five lots that the borough currently owns. Kensinger said these lots could be hooked up to power, sewage, and water with relative ease. A later assembly meeting would decide how these lots are purposed, but Kensinger said these lots would be low-hanging fruit if and when the borough decides to develop an area. Housing manager, housing task force member Sarah Holmgren suggested the borough create a zone for manufactured homes. 
She's also a local realtor. What I'm seeing in my own world of real estate is people are not able to afford since interest rates have gone up. And remembering when I moved to Petersburg when I was a young child in the 80s, there were a lot of manufactured homes because interest rates were quite high. And that's what middle income to lower middle income families could afford at the time. Plus, they're often used as a stepping stone to stick built homes. And maybe some of you even started out in a manufactured home before you made that step to a uh, stick built home. Homegrade said she found four large tracts of borough owned land along North 8th Street, 8th Street which are close to town and could accommodate families with one car. Right now, they're all zoned for multifamily units or apartment buildings. She proposed that the borough examine this parcel and consider rezoning it for smaller lots where people can put up manufactured homes. Petersburg's borough assembly will meet again in the assembly chambers on February 21st at 6 p.m. You can listen to the recording of the most recent meeting on our website, kfsk.org. There's also more information on KFSK's community calendar. There are about a dozen Chilcat weavers in Juneau. They're working five hours or more a day trying to finish up intricate child-sized robes that will be worn by local children in a ceremonial dance. Yvonne Crumry has the story from Juno. The weavers are apprentices of local weaver Lily Hope. During the pandemic, she offered classes virtually. If you say Chilcat robe, raise your hand. What if you say both? Should we raise our hands? But now they're together in person. The children's robes they're working on are detailed and time-consuming. But it takes two years or more to make an adult-sized one. So the smaller ones are both a practical consideration and also really special. They'll be worn by local children at the end of this workshop. There are about a dozen weavers in the room laughing and joking with each other while their hands are tangled up in yellow, blue, black, and white yarn, the traditional colors of Chilcat weaving. The robes they're working on are at different stages, but most are nearly done. Sakoon Dunedin Jackson is here from Alberta, Canada. She started her robe from home by watching Lily Hope's videos. She spun the yarn and hung it on the loom and began weaving. But on a road trip last summer, she got in an accident, and the blanket, as well as everything in her camper van, burned in the wreck. The only reason I was able to participate at all is because um, it's Jody's daughter. Um, she gifted me her auntie's yarns, who had passed. So it is absolutely a, um, a project of, of love and support of this entire community. She was able to restart the robe and thinks she'll finish in time for the first dance. It's not like joining a, cr- a crochet group. Right. It's um, it's more, more. There's culture and there's there's the spiritual aspect of it. I think it makes it. It's what changes it from art to to. The design for her robe is from Hope's late mother, Clarissa Rizal. It was the last child-sized robe she designed. It doesn't have clan affiliations. She wanted to use a design that was quote open source, so that children with any clan affiliation could dance in them. Ganesha Karen Tog started weaving in 1984, but she put it on hold after having five children. The robe she's working on is her first big weaving piece, and she's glad to be in good company for it. You get stuck like in a circle. You know, there's so many people to ask. Plus, Lily does the videos, but still it's nice to interact with all the other ladies. Because you learn little tricks of the trade. 
She plans to have her grandson dance in the robe, which shows the face of a fisherman and his two grandchildren in profile turned towards him in the center. Growing the number of Chilkat weavers is important, Hope said in an earlier interview. Over the last 120 years, fewer than a dozen Chilkat blanket makers or robe weavers um, existed at any given point. We are changing that story this week. All these weavers send a message about the status of Chilkat weaving today. My goal really is to let the world know that we're still making Chilkat robes. We're still weaving our history. We're still telling our stories. Yeah, we're still here alive and well. The robes will be on display at the Juno Douglas City Museum until the end of February. In Juno, I'm Yvonne Crumery. The robes will be displayed at the Juno Douglas City Museum. The tanner crab fishery begins this weekend in southeast Alaska. Crabbers are facing low prices and bitter crab disease is expected to reduce the sellable catch. Elaine Depremini reports from Haines. The Tanner Crab Fishery will start on Sunday. Typically, 60 to 80 boats participate throughout Southeast. This year, the prices are expected to be low compared to recent years. An Anchorage Daily News article lists the end of pandemic stimulus money as a possible factor in reducing consumer demand. But there is also a geopolitical component to this story, according to a local tender in Haines. Brent Crow sums up his understanding of the situation. The biggest thing that's happened right now is that the collapse of the snow crab fishery in uh, the Bering Sea has disrupted the supply chain. Um, Markets that are used to having crab available are looking elsewhere. And uh, Japanese markets have started sourcing crab from Russia through China to circumvent the embargoes on Russian seafood. The embargo was put in place after Russia invaded Ukraine. Crow says because Russian seafood processors have difficulty finding buyers, they are cutting their prices. The availability of that cheap Russian seafood has impacted the Tanu crab market. Last year, the price was uh, $8 ex-vessel, and uh, right now it's looking to settle somewhere in the $3 range. The initial offerings were two fifty. The price drop led to a two-week strike in Kodiak. Crow says there is no indication a similar action will take place in Southeast. Southeast fishermen generally don't organize like that. They either just participate or don't, you know, based on whether or not they see it as profitable. And uh, central Gulf fishermen seem to be more organized in, in that kind of a way. Some crabbers could see their income further reduced by a bitter crab disease. The disease causes the flesh to taste like aspirin. There are some visual cues to the condition, and processors don't buy those crabs. The portion of affected crab varies with location. The Lynn Canal can register as high as 80%. That means crabbers get money for only one in every five crab they catch. The sick crabs are cooked to kill the disease and brought to the landfill to avoid its spread. Crabs have been known to catch the disease after feeding on dead infected crabs. The disease is caused by a single-celled plankton that uses the crab as part of his reproductive cycle. Adam Mesmer is a shellfish biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. It gets into the crab's blood and starts replicating within the crab, and it slows the crab down. And we've seen that in the fish tickets, too. The first couple landings that fishermen will have will have fairly low amounts of bitter crab. And then as the season progresses, the percent of bitter crab goes up. And the thought is that those crab are slower since they're sick. 
crawling in the pot. Mesmer has studied some sick crabs in his lab. The single-cell organisms that cause bitter crab are called dinoflagellate. Mesmer says they use the crab as a host before releasing their spores. We've seen them sporulate in the lab, and the crab will kind of sit up on its legs and start shaking, and this red cloud comes out of its mouth, almost out of a science fiction movie. And those are the, the spores of the young dinoflagellates that are sent out into the water column. And at least the one in the lab, as soon as it was done doing that, it died instantly. Bitter crab is not harmful to humans. The only effect is a bad taste in the mouth. Mesmer says scientists have not been able to determine what causes bitter crab numbers to rise and fall. I think it's just something that we're going to have to live with in this area. For a long time, it stayed really stable. On Sunday at noon, the Department of Fish and Game will announce the duration of the opener. Crabbers can expect a minimum of five days in the most productive and best studied areas, with another five days to fish the less desirable ones. For KHNS, I'm Alan DePremineau. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.